0: as we open. And I do want to review uh, where we are in the book of Romans. Uh, We are right at two years that we've started this thing. I think actually maybe two years today. If not this week, it's next week. It was late August of 15. We are in our fifth point of our outline which is application, the implications of being right with God. Now the reason I bring that up is because we're at the end of that point of the outline, which here's the outline if you're not familiar with it. This is the outline that we've been using as we've gone through Romans. And the main theme of Romans is being right with God. That was our overall overarching theme. Point one was sin, the need for being right with God. And who's a sinner? We all are. And everybody needs to be made right with God. Point two was justification by faith, which is the only means for being right with God. Point three was blessings, the results of being right with God. And we're right smack dab in the middle of that in our radio program right now. Um, if you can check that out Saturday and Sunday, uh, I'll mention it today. We're, we're in Romans 8. I don't remember what part. Romans 8 something. on our, We're about a year behind on the radio program, which is cool. But that was blessings, the results of being right with God. Man, what some blessings we saw. Then we spent some time in Romans 9 through 11.4 vindication, sovereignty, and who is right with God. And that puts us at application, the implications of being right with God. And we've seen from chapter 12, verse 1 through what we'll see today, some very practical how this looks in everyday life. And <clears throat> these last three or four messages overlap a lot. It's okay, we need to hear it over. And over and over again. So, some of the application points have been the same. It's all right. We still need to apply it. So, now that being said, <clears throat> I'm gonna open after that, reopen, with a video clip. Now, let me explain something to you. This is a video clip. This is a clip from the movie The Hunger Games, the first one. And I'm not officially endorsing this movie or telling you to run out and watch it. But I was actually on the treadmill yesterday and I was watching it again and um, this, this part came on and I'm like, well, that's it. <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. That's the illustration I'm looking for. So I want to play this. I want to give you some background. If you don't know what The Hunger Games is, blessed be your name. You're probably more righteous than I. But um, the book takes place in the future and there was a civil war where the citizens rose up against the government. Hmm. Um, And uh, the government put them down through a bloody war. And every year after the war was settled and the government was in control, they had what they would call a reaping, where they would take two children, uh, uh, a male and a female, from each district. The country had been divided up into twelve districts. And they would take two, a male and a female, from each district and they had this gladiator-type game called the Hunger Games. And whoever won was a victor, and the point was one person won, everybody else died. And it was the government's way of reminding everybody we're in control. So this clip that I'm about to play, the white-headed gentleman, Donald Sutherland, if you're familiar with him, is the president of the, of the country, nation, whatever's going on there. And he's talking to the guy who is called the game maker. So the game maker comes up with what the arena looks like that they play in, and he controls... Uh, the props and what happens and that kind of thing. And he talks to him, President Snow talks to Seneca Crane, who's got a wacky beard, so just get ready for that if you haven't seen his beard. Um, He talks to him about hope. Okay. I'll shut up and I'll see if this clip works. I'll see if this clip works. It may not. I may have to read it. Here we go. Oh, nope. Here we don't go. (laughs) Let's see if it works. We've just got a white screen. Luckily, let's see if, oh, here we go. Yay. Why do you think we have a winner? What do you mean? I mean, why do we have a winner? Hope. Is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. It's not sign as long as it's contained. So, so, contain it. Okay. Now let me, some of you may have missed the word that I used. I'm going to reread that. Seneca, why do you think we have a winner? He says, what do you mean? He says, I mean, why do we have a winner? I mean, if we just wanted to intimidate the districts, why not round up 24 of them at random and execute them all at once? Be a lot faster. And he says, the reason we have a winner is hope. And he says, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective for manipulative purposes is what he's saying. A lot of hope is dangerous. And then he says, "A spark is fine, as long as it's contained." And he says, "So," and he says, "So, contain it." And what's happening in the movie is the districts are starting to get hope that they could break free from the government. And he's saying, "Contain that spark." That's the enemy. Okay, this is <laughs> Professor or uh, President Snow is not a Jesus figure in the movie. Just so you know. <clears throat> So the enemy is saying, contain that hope because it's the only thing stronger than fear. we we'll just stand as we read this morning. We're going to be reading chapter 15 of Romans verses 7 through 13. <clears throat> and it starts thusly. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let me pray. God, we believe that what we just read is your very word. God, you have just spoken to us and you have been speaking to us this morning through your word, through the table. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would instruct us and teach us that we might be more like Jesus and that we might abound in hope for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Reading that, it's not hard to see what we're talking about this morning, is (laughs) it? Hope. The passage today initially was to be 8 through 13, but we want to kind of fold in uh, verse 7 to set the context and to help bring this thing uh, full circle. So uh, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7, and we saw that there was an overreaching purpose, an overarching purpose in all that God has done, all that we are to do. And all that is written in the scriptures, and that goal is what the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's what verse seven points us to, and as it does so, it exhorts us to welcome one another, weak and strong. Now, <laughs> let me be let me honesty amnesty day. I won't. I will never bring this up again. Okay, I will never throw it in your face. How many of you are sick of hearing about weak and strong? Yeah, liars. <clears throat> I'm not sick of it, but man, it gets hard to discern who's right, who's wrong, who's weak, who's strong. And what is my responsibility? We belabored that point on purpose because it is hard, but it's super-duper important to the point of... I said super-duper. Where'd that come from? Things come out of my (laughs) my mouth sometimes. (laughs) It's very important that we understand the obligation of the weak and the strong to welcome one another to the point that Paul even said it's a matter of life and death because some have shipwrecked their faith because they violated their conscience. So we spent a long time talking about that and it is a big deal, especially for the stronger brother to look to the weaker brother and forfeit the stronger brother his freedom so as not to violate the weaker brother's conscience. And why? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the point of it all. And we've talked a lot about this. So welcome one another weak and strong as Christ has welcomed us weak and strong. Christ has welcomed both, right? So all that we've talked about in chapter 14 and up to this point in chapter 15 about bearing with one another and giving preference to our brother over ourselves and our freedoms is for the purpose of glorifying God and... We also said last week that it's not only that that's the point in our welcoming each other, but it's the very point of all creation and all of existence. Everything exists for God's glory. God exists for God's glory. Rocks, trees, wind, waves, animals, food, clothes, me, you, it all exists. We all exist to glorify God. So we welcome one another in our strengths and our weaknesses. Now, verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And of course, our first word is what? Four. How many times? I don't know. A bunch. It's happened a lot, right? So this is connecting back to what was said in verses 1 through 7. That's why we wanted to look at verse 7. Welcome one another for the glory of God for I tell you that Christ became a servant. So we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for Christ became a servant. His servanthood, His service is the basis of and the example for our welcoming and bearing with one another. But now, here's where we ask questions of the text. Never just read your Bible. Read your Bible and ask questions and pray. and Think. Think, Christian. Use your brain by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you a question. Jesus became a servant. the Christ became a servant. But who did Jesus serve in this verse? This is pretty interesting. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised." Well who's that? Israel. Israel's the Jews. That's pretty interesting. Now notice what just happened here. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made a shift. We have been for weeks now talking about the call for weak and strong to love each other and bear with one another. But what's the two groups that we see here? He says Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So we've moved from weak and strong through verse 7 into 8 and 9 which has moved to Jews and Gentiles. Now is that saying that one's weak and the other strong? No, it's not. Now there may have been instances where one was weak and one was strong, one was a Jew, one was a Gentile. But we, we, we just made a shift. And that's important to note. Listen, don't mindlessly read your Bible. Look at what it's saying. Pay attention. I'm not fussing at you. I'm exhorting you. Okay. Hard to tell. It is hard to tell. Sorry. So it's not the weak and strong. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order that the Gentiles might glorify God in verse 9. Our example in Christ to bear with weak and strong is embodied in His service to the circumcised, His service to the Jews, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. Now what's it all about? Let's start here in verse 8. We'll get there. So Christ became a servant. Now let me just say quickly, that is really a life-changing statement. Christ became a servant. Let me read you something. We talk a lot about serving God. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Matthew 15-24 says in that service he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Two things I want to point out there. Be careful in your desire to serve God. Be careful. Jesus came to serve and not be served. Why would I say that? Because I think any power that we have to serve has to come from the God who serves, who became a servant. I'm just going to leave that there. We won't elaborate on that, but I want you to think about that. Tuck that away, write it down, whatever. And He came to serve who? The circumcised. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus said. Now, put that in its proper context in what we looked at in 15.8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Jesus came to serve, not be served, and He came to serve the circumcised. Now we'll get into there that as gentiles we'll get there, okay? But right now let's focus on the fact that Jesus Christ came to serve and he came he became a servant to the circumcised. Why did he do that? We get three reasons why he came to be a servant to the circumcised, and it's important that it's to the circumcised. First is that he would show God's truthfulness. It's right there in the text. The second is that in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs." And verse 9 says, "...and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy." So three reasons why Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Look at them again. In order to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So three reasons. Keep those in mind because we're going to go through them one at a time. Jesus' service to the Jews. Jesus becoming a servant to the circumcised was so that people would see God's truthfulness. The Old Testament is a book written primarily to and about the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And I'm not saying we, it doesn't have relevance for us today. It does. It's important. You've got to master your Old Testament in order to grasp the New Testament. But that book was written primarily about and to the Jewish people the nation of Israel. God in the Old Testament promised to send a prophet like Moses. He promised to send a deliverer. He promised to send a Messiah to these Jewish people. If He had not done so, He would be seen as and shown to be a liar. God would be. But He did what He said He would do. He sent Jesus, His Son, God the flesh, as prophet, priest, king, deliverer, and Messiah to the Jewish people. There are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the conception, birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now did you hear what I just said? Over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about the person of Christ. That is not including all the other prophecies about everything else that would happen. There were over 400 prophecies about Jesus Himself in the Old Testament. So if God doesn't keep those promises, if He doesn't fulfill those prophecies, what happens? Well that's just a book for ancient Jews that means nothing. But He did fulfill every single one of them. And these prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus serve to show us the truthfulness of God. God said it. God did it. Now if I gave you an example of something and you had over 400 instances of me being truthful, that's a pretty good track record, right? Now again, I'm not even counting the rest of the prophecies. This is just the ones about Jesus, written hundreds and thousands of years. Hundreds of years and thousands of years, just so we're clear there. Not hundreds of thousands of years. Ken Ham just grabbed his chest somewhere. (laughs) I love Ken Ham, by the way. I like him a lot. So, So these... Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. He showed up as a Jew to the Jewish people, fulfilled the Jewish law, and fulfilled all of these prophecies about Him in order to show God's truthfulness. We can look to the life of Jesus and say, God tells the truth. Okay, What God says, God does. So that's reason number one. Now the next reason Jesus became a servant to the circumcised was to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now we spent a lot of time in Romans 9, 10, and 11 talking about God's dealings with the Jewish people and we saw there that none of those promises have ever nor will they ever be withdrawn. Ever. God established an everlasting covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis saying that he would be a blessing to all the nations and that his offspring would inhabit the land that Abraham was dwelling in and that it would be theirs and that he would be the father of many nations. And that all of the earth would benefit from the blessings of Abraham. Now, the patriarchs referenced in Romans 15 it's commonly held, and it makes sense, that those patriarchs refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the patriarchs of the Jewish nation. And all of God's promises to them, which we don't have time to cover this morning, had to have, had to have been fulfilled. Jesus came, here in Romans fifteen eight to show that God's promises to them were indeed fulfilled in Him. Not just the prophecies, but also the promises. Not just the truthfulness, but the application of what God was true about. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 3. I don't have that up here. Uh, Yeah, I do have it. I'm surprised myself. Galatians 3, 13-16, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith, To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, Abraham, and that offspring is Christ. So Jesus came to confirm the promises to the patriarchs. He is the fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs. okay, That's very important to note. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All of the promises of God find their yes, their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because everything that is ours from God is ours through Him. Same thing for the Jewish people. They didn't get the promises just because they were Jewish. They get the promises because they placed their faith in the Messiah who was Jesus. Jesus is the promise of God and He came to confirm those promises to the Jewish people. But the truth is, unfortunately for them, the Jewish nation nation by and large rejected their Messiah. They missed out on the promises for their lives and by doing so, did something that they might not have expected. They opened the back door and let the goofy Gentiles in. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. That's why Jesus became a servant to the circumcised, the third reason, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Who let the dogs out? Who let the Gentiles in here? Jesus did. Jesus let the Gentiles in. They missed their Messiah and they opened the door for the Gentiles to receive the very promises they were seeking to receive. So Jesus came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now to refer back to Romans 9-11 through again, we saw there that God's plan was never that every single descendant of Abraham would be saved. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated before they ever did anything good or evil. God's choosing. And God's choosing was never choosing every descendant of Abraham. Never. It was never His plan. That was 9-11. through Go back and listen to it. We don't have time for that this morning. It was always God's plan to reach the Gentiles, however. Not every Gentile. And here in Romans 15 we see that part of the reason Jesus became a servant to the Jews was so that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Jesus' work was done not for Jews only, but also for Gentiles, so that all could come to God and receive grace and forgiveness of sins. And He came in order to make these two groups one. The beauty of the people of God is that we are one body with all kinds of different people from all kinds of backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic standings and skin colors and cultures. Jesus Christ is Savior to all aside. If you got your ears on, if you got your eyes on, you see what's going on in Charlottesville right now. We are on the verge as a nation of being split in at least two because of the hatred of black people and white people and multicolored people. We'll say more about this later. There is no place, no place, no place in the Church of Jesus Christ for racism. Zero. If you've got hatred or prejudice in your heart for somebody that's not the same color skin you are, you are wrong. And you should repent. You should confess your sins and repent of them. And you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to make two groups that were hostile toward each other and they were hostile. Jews and Gentiles, He came to bring them together and make them one. The beauty of the people of God is that we are one body. Jesus Christ is Savior to all. He's not a tribal deity of the ancient Hebrews. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. His command to be saved is for every tribe, nation, and tongue. He is not localized. He does not belong to Jews only. Surprise! He does not belong to America only. And His servanthood toward the Jews was for the purpose of drawing the Gentiles in. And this would have been a pretty big deal in the church in Rome, which would have been made up both of Jews and Gentiles. So now, to follow the flow of thought from chapter 14, we're reaching way back till now. We are to bear together with each other weak and strong and we are to bear together Jew and Gentile, black and white. Whatever your differences may be, we are to bear with one another and give preference to one another. There is to be no prejudice or segregation in the church of Jesus Christ ever. Period. If you judge someone because of their skin color or family of origin or nation of origin, you are doing the work of Antichrist. Jesus came to invite those who would come from any and all races or ethnicities. Paul would put it this way in Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. I love the providence of God to bring us this word today. In Christ the divisions and the distinctions fall away. This is similar to the mindset with the weak and strong but it takes it even further and says regardless of what your history was, your present and your future is with the people of God in Christ for His glory and as such we are to celebrate with and for one another the work of Christ for our good, our communion and His glory. You may have come from a rough background or you may have been born with a silver spoon in your mouth. But in Christ we are one. And we are for each other and our lives are bound up in one another. So Christ's work and service among the Jews was done for their sake and the sake of the Gentiles that they worked so hard to separate themselves from. And they did. boy, they Gentile dogs, that's literally what they called them. And God had called them to come out and be separate from the world, but they were to do so in order to make their God attractive to the Gentiles. God was always reaching out to the Gentiles through them. That's what the next part of the passage in Romans 15 shows us. It's four quotes from the Old Testament that show that God was calling out and planning for the Gentiles to be brought in. Now we're going to run through these four references pretty quickly. The first quote is at the end of verse 9. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is pulled from Psalm 18 verse 49. Now keeping in mind what we talked about Wednesday and some of y'all... Uh, don't go here normally. Uh, Some of you weren't here Wednesday night when we're talking about the Psalms. You need to be here Wednesday. There's good stuff going on if you can. What we talked about Wednesday was the Psalms are all, all of them, the Psalms of the King. All of the Psalms are Jesus' Psalms. And here in this one mentioned, the Christ says He will praise God among the Gentiles and He will sing to God's name. So He's saying to the Gentiles, in the Psalms. Now, 1510, and again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. That's pulled from Deuteronomy 32-43. So even as the Jews were preparing to enter into the Promised Land, which is what was going on in Deuteronomy, there was a call for Gentiles to praise God and rejoice with the Jews. Verse 11 says, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples, peoples, I love the word peoples, and let all the peoples extol Him." Now that's a quote from Psalm 117, 1. And it's a command for Gentiles to praise the Lord and for His extolation to be accomplished by all the peoples. And this short passage here with these four references concludes in 12, when it says, and again Isaiah says, "...the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope." That's from Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 10. And this is a Messianic prophecy and Isaiah says that the root of Jesse, which refers to Jesus as the ultimate source of life for Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, Israel's greatest king. This root of Jesse arises to rule who? The Gentiles. David, Israel's ideal king, ruled over Israel as God's people. But Jesus, the greater David, was not to only rule over Jews but over Gentiles and the Jews. The hoped-for Messiah of the Jews would also be the hope of the Gentiles." We see it plainly in these four quotations which oddly enough, if you look at those, pulled from all three major sections of the Hebrew writings, law, prophets, wisdom literature. We saw Deuteronomy from the law. We saw two Psalms and we saw the prophet being Isaiah. So this guy Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, top notch. He covered their whole Bible basically in those four quotations. It's like God knew what He was doing or something. And these prophecies, these commands, these things written hundreds and thousands of years before show that God had a plan to reach both Jew and Gentiles. And not only that, it showed that both the Jew and the Gentiles would have what? What's the last word of this verse? Hope. Oh, this word. (laughs) This word and this concept bring bring us to the close of the major doctrinal section of the book of Romans in verse 13 of chapter 15. And here we go. Let's look at it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Man, let me tell you, this verse has just absolutely lit me up like a Christmas tree. And I mean that. I I was sitting there while Will's announcing and I'm just excited. I'm like, I get to share this today. And it's like that almost every week. Sometimes I'm not quite as excited. But this verse, so much here, so much power, so much Christianity here. Read it again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now after spending chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 up to this point, giving us numerous and specific ways to let love be genuine, Paul concludes this section and the major points and theme of his letter with this verse. And what does he highlight? What does he pray for? Because that's what this is. This is a prayer. May the God of hope. So he's appealing to God to do something. Read it again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What's the goal here? So that you may abound in hope. (laughs) The goal is you, me, us abounding in hope. Now there are other things in the verse that would have been good to pray for, right? Look, God, joy, peace believing, power of the Holy Spirit, but they are not the goal. Not of this prayer. Those things that I mentioned, God, joy, peace, believing, power of the Holy Spirit, are means to an end. They are components in the machine to carry us to the destination of hope. Oddly enough, what's next Saturday called? The day of... After all the powerful truths seen in chapters 1 to 15, Paul asks God to fill his readers with what? Hope! Why? Why? Let's dig into this verse to see. Like I said, it's a prayer. He prays, may the God of hope. Now I don't know about you, but I don't think I have ever called God the God of hope. I mean, I've read this before, but like in my prayers, have you ever said, God of hope, I come to you? Or have you ever referred to, like talking to somebody and you refer to God, I know the God of hope. I don't think I ever... And it's not condemning. I just, it just never popped in my head. He prays, may the God of hope. Now, God of power, man, I'm on board with that. God of grace, God of deliverance, God of provision, God of blessing. I've said all that stuff and that's fine. That's good. That's right. But at the conclusion of everything we've seen in chapters 1 to 15, Paul refers to God as the God of hope. And he petitions this God of hope to do what? Fill you, which is us by association. He's talking to the church in Rome. He prays to the God of hope to fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now that's good stuff right there, right? Asking the God of hope to fill His readers and hearers with all joy and peace. And where is that joy and peace found? It's found in believing. Believing what? Believing all that we've seen in the last two years. All that we've heard over the past 40 minutes. That the gospel is true. That we're justified by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we have peace with God that we have the Holy Spirit of God within us, that there is now no condemnation, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that God is for us, that He foreknew us from before creation, that Jew and Gentile have been grafted into the tree of God's grace, that we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and that we can love genuinely, and that that God is the God of hope. He prays that we would be filled with joy and peace in believing all of those things. And so much more. Believing these things fills us with joy and peace. And why have peace and joy? So that. So that. Purpose statement. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. First, the first part of that. As believers Where do we get the power to do anything of significance in the kingdom of God? Only through the Holy Spirit. Period. Now there's a month's worth of messages just there. But we'll suffice it to say this morning that if we're shooting for getting God's will done, if we're looking to serve God, it has to be God serving in and through us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. It has to be through the power of the Holy Spirit or it does not get done. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? Again, we don't have time to get into all of that this morning. Herb Hodges calls him our stay within friend. He is God in us. Swallow that down. God in us. And He came and was given when Jesus was glorified after He had ascended to heaven after His resurrection. And the Holy Spirit's power is the very power of God. And listen, listen to me. And that power, that person, the Holy Spirit is within every believer. Romans 8, 9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Which infers that if you are belonging to God, you do have the Spirit of Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it until I die. There are those who would tell you that you have to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to come after you're born again. No. Blasphemy. You're just calling the Word of God a liar if that's your message. Holy Spirit is here. No Holy Spirit, no child of God. Okay, But that very same Holy Spirit, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within every believer. So we believers have this Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And in His power, by His doing, the goal is by His power you may abound in hope. Now I don't want to be a dead horse, but in my mind if I'm going to be empowered by God's Spirit, I could think of something bigger, something better than just to abound in hope. How about you? And if I'm Paul and I'm praying to bring everything I've said to a climax, Whoa! I think I'd pray for a vision for the world or power to raise the dead or miracles or something about the kingdom of God or something. But hope? That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That's all you got, Paul? All you got for me is abounding in hope at the end of all of this stuff? Yes. That's all I got for you. Because this is the best, this is the brightest star in our Christian sky. Now you say, wait a minute, hopefully your mind's clicking. You're saying, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. True. I will not try to contradict that this morning and would never try to contradict it. But what I'm saying is at the end of this, at the pinnacle of the letter, when he's saying, Spring bring everything to inclusion, what I want for you more than anything, as you love your brother, as you genuinely love your brother, I want the Holy Spirit of God to empower you to abound in hope. I want to ask you a question. Do you know the power of hope? And I mean real biblical hope. Now we've touched on this over the last few weeks, but hope in the Bible is not based on unsurety. Like me hoping the Yankees beat the Red Sox this evening. And I do hope that. But instead in the Bible, biblical hope is the assurance of what God has done for us and what is ours in heaven and what will be ours into eternity. Biblical hope is knowing and understanding what is ours in Christ. And if we truly understand this and appropriate that into our lives, we will be unstoppable. We will be unflappable. We will be undefeatable. And I say that in sincerity. If we truly understand who Christ is, what is ours in Him, we will not be stopped as the church of Jesus Christ. I was getting the radio recording ready this week and I said we were in Romans 8 there, but the title of the message that's on the radio this week is, What If It's True? I don't know if you remember that or not, but we were in Romans 8. But I want to ask you that this morning as we deal with hope but I want to deal with it not in a question necessarily. What if it's true? But hope puts that question in a positive light and hope puts it as now that it is true in my life. Hope brings the work... I hear me. Hope brings the work of God the promises of God, and the very life of God into the life of the believer. Let me say that again. Hope brings the work of God, the promises of God, and the very life of God into the life of the believer. Hope is the fuel that makes the vehicle of the Christian's life go. Hope is the all we've got and the all we need when the Spirit is in and with us. Now back to the video that I showed of President Snow, this morning he said, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. That's a pretty good statement. Hope gives us what we need to overcome our fears and our doubts. As I sit in the therapy office over the hill over here, it is my desperate plea to try to bring hope to people. Because they're in the middle of a quagmire. They're in the middle of depression. They're in the middle of acute anxiety. They're in the, in the throes of loss. And in the midst of it, what I want to do is throw them a lifeline saying there is hope. Why? Why hope? Why is hope stronger than fear? Paul prays here that the recipients of his letter would abound in hope meaning that they are increasing in hope more and more all the time that's what abounding means and it's Paul's greatest plea to God for his readers why because hope and here's where we jump into Hebrews 6 which we've gone over this a couple times already but I'm going to read this again verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews 6 and we're almost done For when God made a promise to Abraham, we've heard that this morning, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise." A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we won't cover Melchizedek this morning. Just forget that, okay? For this morning, forget that. But this is what I want you to understand. Hope is like taking an anchor, throwing it up into heaven where Jesus is and saying, hold on to this for me because I'm about to pass through some storms. Jesus says, got it. And you will not be moved. You'll be shaken and stirred like a good martini. I've never drank a martini, but shaken, not stirred. <laughs> we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Listen, (laughs) Jesus is holding the rope. And not to rhyme, but that's our only hope. That's the only hope that we need. Jesus is holding the rope. He is the anchor that is behind the veil. He ain't moving, y'all. He ain't going nowhere. When he finished the work, Hebrews says, he sat down at the right hand of God. And one day we're going to gather around that throne. By his doing, because of his faithfulness, the anchor is going to pull us to himself. And that's biblical hope. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This passage says, God can't lie. God made promises. And this truth and these promises are ours and serve as an anchor for our souls. And that is our hope that keeps us firm and steadfast, as sure as if we are with Jesus there behind the curtain in the very presence of God. Because in truth we are. Because we are in Christ. That hope, that anchor is the Holy Spirit's goal and point in our lives. So yeah, Paul, pray away that I, that we might abound in hope. Full assurance and overflowing with confidence in God and His work. What He said He would do and what He said He's going to do, that'll do. That'll get back to our introductory thought. That'll start quite the fire in me that can't be contained. May it be. So let's apply all this, okay? Three application points. First, kill. K I L L. Kill. kill. Any and all prejudice and hate for any others mercilessly in your life. You got prejudice, you kill it. God's goal was to bring two hostile parties together and make something beautiful out of them. Just what Steve read here this morning, that they might become one. That's the goal. Jews and Gentiles. Cats and dogs. Let me read. This is a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I'm just going to read it so that you can see this in full living color out of the Bible. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's no room for prejudice there. There's no room for hating somebody because they're black or because they're white or because they're Hispanic. And if that's in your life, if that's in your heart, you mercilessly kill it. Amen. You have no choice in that if you're going to walk with Jesus and if you're going to be built up into a temple that is a dwelling place for Him. Kill it. Confess it. Repent of it. That's the first application point. Second application point. Look at the past to see God's work. We talked about this some last week in 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You want hope? It's in the Bible. Listen to me, younger folks. These are not stories that somebody collected to teach us a good moral lesson. You get the Bible, you get history. Real history. Not revisionist history. Not American history. Not world history. You get cosmic, God-centered history. Adam and Eve were real people. It's not a story. Noah's Ark, we went to the ark thing in Kentucky. It's not a story that you put on nursery walls. Happy little animals bouncing up and down. No, it's a story of God's wrath against the sin of mankind. And all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, all through the ascension of Christ up until our day, look back and see the work of God. He has not stopped working. He will not stop working. I've read the end of the book. I've read the end of history. And He's still working. So look back over 6,000 years of God's working in this world and say, He has never stopped. He's never going to stop. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Look back and see the work of God. God told the Israelites over and over and over and over again, remind them of these things, tell them these things, put up memorial stones, look back at what I've done in the past so that you can draw hope for the present and in the future. Never stop looking back. That's kind of contradictory to what the culture might tell you. Oh never stop looking back. Look back and see the faithfulness of God in your life, in the life of the Jews, in the life of the Gentiles and draw hope from that. I want to quickly tell a short story. John Piper tells the story of Anne Rice. Anybody know Anne Rice? Does that name ring a bell to you? She was a vampire novelist. Wrote over 30 vampire novels. She was an atheist. But Let me read you the quote. John Piper says, I drew attention to Anne Rice, the vampire novelist who some years ago turned from 30 years of atheism because of Israel. Even her most recent misgivings about institutional Christianity don't nullify the validity of her discovery. She said, I stumbled upon a mystery without a solution. A mystery so immense that I gave up trying to find an explanation because the whole mystery defied belief. The mystery was the survival of the Jews. It was this mystery that drew me back to God. She couldn't explain why there's still Jews around. And it drew her back to God because she kept looking back and she kept seeing the work of God. And she said, I believe in this, God. Don't ever stop looking back. Look at the past to see God's work. Why? Why? Kill prejudice. Don't stop looking back. Why? So that the past and your present can give you hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that you may abound in hope. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. This hope makes us unstoppable. Everything can be taken from us. But we know the truth of our ultimate reality. We know who's holding the anchor behind the veil. We sang it this morning. Though you slay me, Yet will I praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. That is hope. And that's the secret, y'all. He really is all we need. Really. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship and sing a song to the one who's all I need. Sing a song to the one who's holding the anchor of my life and who will never let go. He's all we need, literally. And the enemy would seek to contain our hope. But Jesus but have it run wild and spread like wildfire from me to you and you to me and us to the world and say, our hope is in the person of Christ and He will not be contained. Is He safe? No, He's not safe, but He's good. And He is our only hope and He's the only hope we need. God, I will pray to you the words that we sang this morning. Though you slay me, yet will I praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship and sing a song to the one who's all I need. All our hope is in you, Jesus. And it's enough. You are enough. I don't know that I've got anything else to say there. So we do trust you and we do hope. And we ask what Paul asked for the Romans. That God, you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, your very power, that you would fill us with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction, then we'll bring the kids out to do their presentation. I got no better benediction than this right here. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And all God's people said, Amen. You can be seated.